The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. I remember when I first started my business, going into negotiation conversations where I'd need to advocate for myself, right? I'd need to ask a client for more money or sell new business. And I felt like I wasn't coming from a position of power. For most people, anxiety is a fear or concern about the future. You spiral overthinking the worst case scenario, or you run through all the things that could go wrong. And having that anxiety going into any negotiation, feeling like it's going to go wrong and I don't even deserve this, can really feel like a loss of power, like you're helpless. Now, this might be because you suffer from social anxiety or don't want to say the wrong thing, or you might be really worried about losing your job, or you may feel like you just don't have the leverage to ask for anything until the economy feels stronger, until your business has a bigger track record, until, until, until. But the thing is, negotiation is always there. We do it every day. And for many people like me, Anxiety might also be a constant companion. We're joined today by someone who I feel is a kindred spirit. He has great advice for handling these kinds of situations. In fact, he teaches the next generation of business leaders how to engage in effective negotiations, no matter what their strengths, weaknesses, hang-ups, or even anxieties. Moshe Cohen is a senior lecturer at Boston University's Crestron School of Business, and he wrote the book Collywobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous. Moshe talked to me about how to approach negotiating if you're prone to anxiety and what to do when you recognize anxiety across the bargaining table, too. Moshe, I have to ask you, does negotiating make you nervous or has it has it ever? Oh, totally. So, you see, I, I think there's two kinds of people that come to do what I do. Some are people who have never had difficulty negotiating and they portray themselves as experts or master negotiators. And their take on things is, I'm wonderful at this. Let me show you what I do. If you do what I do, you'll be good too. Yes. And then there's people like me who say, I've struggled with a lot of this my whole life. And I've learned a few things along the way. So let me share them with you. And when I took my first negotiation class, I took it because I didn't feel like a very confident negotiator. I took it because I thought I was a bad negotiator. And over the course of the class, I realized I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. Was there a specific negotiation that made you feel like you were a bad negotiator? No, just my own conflict aversion. I think that, you know, I have good skills, but in my heart of hearts, I'm a conflict averse people person or people pleaser. And when you're not comfortable with conflict and trying to make people happy, it's really hard to negotiate for yourself. 
I mean, I think you just nailed it. I would also add when you have fear of rejection, conflict avoidant, people pleaser who fears being rejected above all. Mm-hmm. It's a, kind of like a bad recipe <laughs> to get a, an outcome that you want. And and yet what I've discovered is that you're not predestined to have a bad experience or get bad outcomes. A lot of the stuff hmm. you can learn. And in particular, what I've come to was the idea that you have to learn how to manage your emotions simultaneously with using your negotiation skills. And if you can balance the two of those things, I don't care you who you are, you can do pretty well. Learning to manage your emotions while doing anything else is to me the ultimate skill of adulthood. It's not easy. <laughs> it's I think if if more of us had the self-awareness and regulation skills to both be human and regulate our emotions, the world would be a lot better place. Mm-hmm. So nervous is another word for anxiety. Mm-hmm. You talk about being nervous before negotiating. I'm interested to see in your class or in the real world, how often you've seen real anxiety come up in people before a negotiation or even a negotiation exercise. So constantly, you know, when we go into our first negotiation in the class, it's a competitive negotiation. People pair up. It's strictly about outcome. There's a buyer and a seller. Buyers try to buy low. Sellers try to sell high. And then we post the results on the board. Everybody has to write their names on the board and I show the whole class their numbers. And the degree of anxiety that shows up in that room is through the roof. And, you know, I do that on purpose because I want people to experience that in order to then be able to give them tools to deal with that. So when they feel that in their real negotiations, they can start managing how they're feeling and what they're doing. Because, you know, anxiety isn't bad. It just is, right? Like any feeling, our feelings aren't bad. They just are. The question is, can we be aware of them in real time? Do we have tools to manage them? So they're still there, but they're not driving the bus. And can we still do things effectively despite them? Yep. Anxiety is not good or bad. It is. But I think that anxiety, and there's data to support this, can get in your way of a positive outcome because it can inhibit risk and it can cause you to freeze or simply not be able to move forward. So I'm just curious when you're doing that exercise and and everyone in the room is, or mostly everyone is anxious. Do you acknowledge that? Do you ask them to look inside and ask themselves, are they anxious? Like, how do you, how do you treat that anxiety? Well, I ask a more open-ended question. I ask them, you know, how do you feel? Yeah. And, you know, I do this differently for different exercises. Sometimes I'll ask them, okay, what was the first thing that came to your mind when I introduced the exercise? Mm. What happened to you when you found yourself alone with the other party and had to begin the conversation? Because anxiety doesn't show up once and then you deal with it in scan. It'll show up over and over again mm-hmm. as you go through various stages of the process. So I ask a lot of questions to help people understand what's going on. And when I talk about people being nervous when they negotiate, it's before, after, and during. You can be, you know, you can suffer from a lot of anticipatory anxiety. <laughs> going mm-hmm. into your negotiation. And I'd say, actually, that's sometimes the worst of it. Because what we don't know, we imagine. And in negotiations, we never know. So we're imagining an awful lot. And usually, it's pretty scary stuff. So we can work ourselves into a lather. 
And then during the negotiation, over and over and over again, there are things that can happen that will, in a momentary way, cause our anxiety to spike. Yes. And then the question is, can we recognize it? Can we stop and then slow down time to be able to get back to a better place before we continue the process? You know, I coach a lot of people in negotiations, and probably the two words I've said more than any others are slow down. Talk us through that. So anything that happens to you, anything anybody says, anything anybody does, any situation you walk into impacts you first on the emotional level. And emotions hit you very, very hard and very fast. Mm. And then they start subsiding. (laughs) Meanwhile, your cognitive brain is slowly catching up. And only when your cognitive brain has actually overtaken your emotional brain are you once again a rational thinking human being. So what that means is that if you want to be responsive to situations rather than reactive, what you need to do is, first of all, identify the kind of things that typically send you into emotional overload. And it could be things like time pressure, authority figures, certain personalities, certain behaviors by the other party, subject matter surprises. There are lots of things that can send you into emotional overload. You need to also understand what happens to you when you're emotional overload. Different people have different stress symptoms that show up, mm. right? For some people, you're, you're, their, their heart rate goes up, their breathing changes. You might tremble, you might feel hot, you, you might feel it in your stomach, which by the way, is called the collie wobbles, which is why I called my book that. <laughs> That's what it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> it literally means butterflies in your stomach. Wow. You're in amygdala hijack, basically. Your, your sort of primitive threat sensory system has taken over. Absolutely. And is telling you there's a threat ahead. Absolutely. And you know, your, your cognitive brain will catch up if you just give it the time it needs. You know, so then I talk about various techniques you can use to slow down time. And that could be anything from just staying silent and not saying anything to asking for a break to asking the person questions rather than responding to them. So you turn the floor back to them. And while they're talking, you're also calming down. Mm -hmm. Different people have different tools to get themselves back to a better emotional state. Different people have different stress symptoms and each person has different triggers. So if you can identify, become more aware of all three of those things, your triggers, your stress symptoms, and the tools you can use to get to a better place, it's not perfect, but you can manage your emotions to a point where most of the time, you can get back to being functional again and be responsive rather than reactive. I feel like this is kind of an aha moment for me and for people who manage anxiety, which is the notion of slowing down time. Of course, when your anxious brain takes over, it wants to also make you feel better. So it's going to throw some pretty impulsive ideas at you. And you're just saying sort of press pause. You know, I can think of so many times when something happened and I either said or did something I regretted later. Mm -hmm. And if I could have paused even 10 seconds, there's a pretty good chance I would have said something smarter. More is better, but 10 seconds can sometimes be all you've got. (laughs) And even that can help. (laughs) You know, you got to be practical about these things. I'd love to say, you know, go away for a day and come back, but that's not practical. Sometimes you can't. But even slowing down for a few seconds can often get you back to a better place. Can we role play you using your technique? I guess I could be the other party. Sure. Okay. Should I start by saying something like, no, sorry, that price isn't going to work for me. So it sounds like the price I'm proposing isn't working for you. 
Tell me more about that. I mean, it, it's just too high. I could get a million other people for a much lower price, and you know it. So one of the things you're saying is you have alternatives. There's other people that do what I do. And you feel like if you're not getting good value from me, then it's not worth your while to work with me. You'd rather work with other people. How would you define what value looks like in this situation? I want a good product for a fair price. Mm -hmm. So what does a good product look like? Well, now I have to pause and think, see. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two things going on here. One, as a negotiator, I'm exploring your interests and trying to get a sense of what makes you tick. But as an anxious person, the more I get you to talk, the less I have to talk. And while you're talking, I'm also catching my breath and getting to a better place so I can respond strategically rather than react emotionally. The skill is being able to do both, as you said up front, because you're, mm -hmm. you're asking me thoughtful questions. You're clearly listening to me. But are you also having a sort of dialogue in your brain? Of course. To calm down? So it's interesting because the two tools I talk about the most are something called the emotional response curve, which is what I described to you with this emotional hijacking that eventually subsides and giving time for your cognitive brain to catch up. And the other one is the listening triangle, which is just a, a specialized form of active listening used in negotiation. And what I've done with the listening triangle, it's really ask open-ended questions, stay silent, listen for the interest driving the other person, and then reflect back either by parroting, paraphrasing, or reframing what they said to you, and doing it over and over again. And I've been teaching this for a couple of decades. What I do when I negotiate with people is constantly using both of those things. The, the main tool I use to uncover what's going on with the other person, but also to slow myself down, is the listening triangle. However, it's really hard to use the listening triangle when you're emotionally overwhelmed. So there's this dance between managing my emotions by listening and then using the listening to get information that would make it less necessary for me to keep managing my emotions. Hmm. What if your questions get met with a question? I've actually had that happen to me before, and it throws me off. So whatever anybody says to you, reflect back, including if it's a question. So for example, if I responded to you by saying, what kind of questions have thrown you off? I'm not really answering your question. <laughs> And then you can say, well, it sounds like you want to know what kind of questions are the tough ones for me. Why is that important? And now you flipped it around on me. So whatever anybody says to you, reflect back. And are you also forcing them to think? I'm not forcing anything. I don't think you can force anybody to do anything. But what I am doing is I'm creating the space for that. And by slowing myself down, I also slowed them down. And, and look, you know, people negotiate with you, ultimately they have some objectives they're trying to meet. And you have some objectives you're trying to meet. And if you can find solutions that meet both sets of objectives, there's a deal to be had. Otherwise, there isn't. But people act a lot of times out of stress in negotiations. And when we're stressed, we tend to rush. And that's true on my side of the table, but it's also true on the other side of the table. So by slowing myself down, I slow the whole process down. And I get both the other party and myself into a better emotional state where we can actually have a reasonable conversation and figure out how to move forward. I love that. 
It's reminding me, I mean, I want to talk about money in a second, but I had Buffy Purcell, who's a financial advisor on the show, and we were talking about money anxiety and sort of impulsiveness when you're triggered around money. And she talked about clients of hers who had gotten a really threatening letter from the IRS that made it sound like they owed $50,000 in back taxes. And the couple was so panicked, they immediately paid it because they thought the IRS was going to come knock on their door, right, and send them to jail. And it was only, you know, a, a day or two later when Buffy read the letter, she said, wait, no, they want more records. They don't want the money. But that panic had caused them to take drastic action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know if the panic caused them to take the drastic action. The panic caused them to panic. <laughs> and what they did was they took drastic action. Now imagine if they panicked like that, and instead of calling the IRS or sending the IRS money, they'd talk to their neighbor or their friend or somebody they trusted, and they said, here's what happened. The first thing that their friend would say is, let me see the letter. Yeah. Right? So and the question isn't, we're going to get triggered. Life does that to us. The question is, how can we catch ourselves before we take action and do or say something we regret? How I feel is how I feel. I can feel awful. But if I can slow myself down so I don't actually do anything until I feel better, well, then, then, I've, done, then I've done myself quite a favor there. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. I've always been really fond of the concept in negotiation of always consult before doing or always consult before deciding. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you ascribe to that or a version of that, and how much advice is enough? When a lot of us are, are in a negotiation, we want to get advice, right? But what's the right way to do it? So first of all, you know, I tend to shy away from any always or nevers. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, I like that. I think that there are different negotiations. There are ones that are either not that important or not that difficult for me that I can do totally on my own and don't trigger any of these things that we're talking about. Right. But let's pretend I'm negotiating to change jobs. Before I make my final decision as to, you know, do I accept the terms that, that I've negotiated or, you know, do I make the move? I'll probably talk to my wife. I'll probably talk to a couple friends of mine mm-hmm. and people that I respect and trust and people who think differently than I do. Cause that's a key thing. You don't want just confirmatory thinking. You, you want, you want someone who actually will challenge what you're thinking. And only once I put it through that, do I then feel comfortable to go ahead and make those decisions. Like you don't always have the luxury of getting advice. Sometimes you have to make decisions on the spot. And I think you have to have the confidence to do that. And the issue is, you know, it's harder to have confidence when you're feeling anxious. But the point is all negotiations involve risk. There's a risk to doing. There's a risk to not doing. There's a risk to saying yes to something. There's a risk to walking away from something. So you're never going to eliminate risk. And once you understand that no matter what choice you make, there's risks involved, then at some point you say, okay, then I'm going to make a choice. And one way or another, I've taken on some risk. But yeah, it's a good idea to get advice if you can get it, especially if 
it's an important negotiation or one that is challenging for you. Huh. I want to talk about Batner anchoring in a minute, but just on this concept, I'd love your thoughts. <laughs> if you know that your counterpart is anxious, is there a way that you can use that to your advantage in a negotiation? Oh, that's a tough question because of course you can. Yeah. But the question is, what's your goal? Uh, and if you're negotiating in a short-term competitive situation, let's say you're buying something on Craigslist and you notice that the other person is just so uncomfortable, could you use their anxiety to get a better price? Sure. And that's fine because you'll never see them again and it's a one-time transaction. And if you can get over feeling bad about it, then you're fine. But most negotiations aren't like that. Most negotiations are with people we see over and over again. And if you take advantage of that, yes, you might get some short-term advantage, but how do you feel about yourself? How, what have you done to that relationship? Mm -hmm. I think that when you're negotiating, you should have your big picture interests in mind. And there's lots of things you can do. Then the question is, what should you do? Yeah. I think that's really good advice for people who feel very anxious around negotiating, right? Is that you could say to yourself, my goal here is not to get every cent out of this person who I'm going to be working with for hopefully the next 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to make me self-conscious when I go work with them. Right. At the same time, you know, I think that if you go too far in that direction, then you actually hold yourself back from negotiating at all. Interesting. I know so many people who have a hard time advocating for themselves because they feel like by negotiating, they're taking advantage of the other person. And this really gets at the rejection issue you brought up before. You know, I, I think that it's hard to ask people to do things. And it's hard for us on a number of levels. One, we're awfully scared they're going to say no. And that rejection will feel terrible. On the other hand, I think we're also afraid they'll say yes. And then we'll feel like we took advantage of them. So imagine that you're working in an office, which not everybody does anymore, but let's say you're working in an office and a window office is opened up mm -hmm. and there's 20 people who have equal claim to that window office, but you run to your boss first and you ask for that window office. Now, if your boss says no, you're feeling terrible because you're thinking right. my boss doesn't value me. You're shamed. Yeah. If your boss says yes, you're happy to move into that office, but then you think, okay, everybody else hates me. <laughs> so one way or another, if you're anxious, you don't have a good out there. You're going to be not, you know, you're going to be in tough shape no matter which way you go on that one. So what's the answer? Should you duck out of it altogether because it's, you know, that it's not worth the emotional cost to you? No, you should definitely ask for the office. <laughs> Why? Well, because the worst that can happen is your boss says no, and then you're no worse off than you are. And if you, Get the office and other people don't, chances are they won't really hate you. That's more in your mind than in theirs. I mean, think if somebody else got the office, you wouldn't hate them. You'd resent them a little bit for getting the office, but you'd move on. It's a much bigger deal for them than it is for you. I think that's rational, but my experience, you know, anxiety is not rational. And, and, if, and if you're a ruminator, I mean, the post-event processing might be very intense for someone with clinical anxiety, right? They would fixate on that outcome. Absolutely whether it was rational or not. And so I guess that's my question. If you know that you're probably going to stew on it, is it ever okay to just be like, you know what, I'm going to protect myself from that? No. And I'll tell you why I don't think so. Look, first, again, ever, 
again, I don't like to deal in absolutes. Right, but, right. Never. I got But it. here's the problem. Let's pretend you decided for those reasons not to ask for the office. And then the worst performer on your team was the person who got to your boss and got that office. How angry are you going to be at yourself for having not asked for it? Super angry. So the way I see it, as an anxious person, you're going to get yourself in trouble one way or another, whether you do or you don't. This way, you'll have a nice office. <laughs> well, to be anxious. Yeah. In. <laughs> <laughs> the rejection thing, if I could just mention something about that, that is such a huge thing for people. And in my class at BU and with all my corporate clients as well, I do an exercise where I force people to go out in the world and ask for stuff hmm. to the point where 10 people say no to them. And they have to go out over the period of three weeks and keep asking for things until 10 people say no. And in doing that, one of the things they discover is how much value they've left on the table because they keep getting yeses and they get tons and tons of value. I've students have gotten thousands of dollars worth of value just in the three weeks of doing this exercise. And then they also realize that when people say no to you, mm -hmm. nobody died. You just got, they just said no. And they don't hate you. And very often, it's a much bigger deal for you than it is for them. And it's a great exercise. And the way to manage some issues around anxiety is through exposure, through just forcing yourself to do it. Take small risks. Start where it's safer. And then build up to bigger risks as you discover that, wait, you know, nothing bad happened when I tried this. I think getting rejected is a muscle that you have to build. And I say this as someone who literally... In my journey as a as a content creator and author, it gets rejected or even worse, just ignored mm -hmm. at least once a day. Yeah. And getting ignored is actually worse. When someone just ghosts you or doesn't respond, like that to me is is much more anxiety triggering. But it's you know, it, it really takes practice to get rejected and be able to move on. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on all of those counts, including the how I hate getting ghosted. Compared, I'd much rather deal with somebody who says no to me or confronts me than someone who just doesn't respond. 100%. But you know, when I started my business back in the 90s, I had to do a lot of cold calling because that's what happens when you start a new business. Mm -hmm. And cold calling is just planned rejection. And it was awful. I would do it for a couple hours and then I'd be depressed. Mm -hmm. But over time, you 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 kind of get hardened to it and it doesn't impact you the same way. Exactly. And then you find that you can take bigger risks because I think that's the key. If you are so afraid of rejection, it will keep you small. Agreed. Agreed. And I have a lot of empathy for people who are afraid of rejection. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that very often we tend to be very judgmental about people like that. And first of all, to realize that it's us, not of them. Like we all have mm -hmm. potentially tendencies to not like rejection and, and react to it in that way. But also, if you can approach it from a place of understanding and understand it really does feel bad. So mm -hmm. take small risks, take them over and over again. You know, have the, have the bad feeling, but in small enough doses that it doesn't floor you. And then <laughs> as you build up calluses, build up to the bigger risks. And you'll also have some really fun successes along the way. And that keeps you going. Moshe, what question am I not asking you that you have a really valuable piece of advice to give? So I think one thing that people aren't thinking about as much as they need to be is what they're telling themselves. Okay. So when I'm about to negotiate with you or throughout the negotiation, I'm thinking 
about all sorts of narratives in my own mind. I have narratives about you. I have narratives about me and about the, the situation. If I'm thinking, oh, you know, Mora is this super accomplished, experienced negotiator. I don't have a chance. Well, I've just completely psyched myself out of the negotiation. <laughs> or if I say, well, you know, it, it's we're heading into a recession. I got to accept any offer the company gives me. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I've completely talked myself out of being able to effectively advocate for my needs. So we tell ourselves stories all the time about ourselves, the other person, the situations, and those stories have a profound impact on what we do, how we feel, and how we interact with other people. And the thing to remember is that these stories exist entirely in our own minds. And because of that, we have the ability to rewrite them if we can first be aware of them, slow ourselves down so we don't just react out of the panic to them, and then ask ourselves, what other story could we say to ourselves? It's not that our first story is wrong, but chances are it's not the only story we can be telling. And if we do that, we can learn how to be the, the authors of our stories rather than the victims of our own stories. Because very often, by being the victims of our own stories, we put ourselves in a situation that becomes very, very difficult for us to get out of spinning in our own anxiety and to, to actually advocate effectively for ourselves. So I think the question is, what are you telling yourself? And when I coach people in negotiation, it's one of those questions I ask very, very frequently. How can having a BATNA or a goal number help around that? Or does it help? It can help a lot, actually. So any negotiation occurs in the shadow of what's going to happen if you don't come to an agreement. And that's the BATNA. So the more knowledgeable and aware you are about what's going to happen if you don't come to an agreement, the less scary it is. I I think a lot of times in negotiations, we react to fear of the unknown. And if I think, oh, if I don't, you know, if I don't accept this job, something terrible will happen. Well, you know, I was actually coaching somebody the other day who was considering a negotiation like this. And I stopped her and I said, all right, what's actually going to happen if they don't accept your suggestion? And she said, well, I can find another job in two weeks. (laughs) And I'm like, well, how do you feel now? She's like, way more confident. (laughs) So, you know, and and she had that alternative out there all the time, but she wasn't focused on it. She was like, oh, what what if I get, you know, what if I have to part ways with my employer? Right. And she was spinning around on that until she started thinking about it. You know, what really will happen? And she realized her her skills are in huge demand. That makes you feel much better. Right. Right. It's just the stakes, the temperature goes down on the negotiation. And and let me push it further. Even if your alternatives aren't that good, Mm -hmm. just being aware of them and sitting with them makes them less scary. I think a bad certainty is actually less anxiety provoking than uncertainty. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>